worship from the Psalm 102. It's a psalm in which the psalmist reminds us that God is the one who created the world and everything in it, but he is also the very great God who is from everlasting to everlasting. So will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. I say, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Even if they perish, you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You change them, and they will be changed. And now let us take our Trinity hymn books and turn to number six. All ye that fear Jehovah's name. Number six in the Trinity hymn book.
heaven. There is none in heaven but you. There is no one that we desire on earth beside you. And you, God and Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, completely meet us in our need and in our desire for you are the all-powerful one in heaven and your son is the one who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he has uh, taken on flesh for the suffering of death that he by the grace of God might uh, provide uh, a redemption for every man. Thank you for that. Thank you for uh, your grace in Christ that has uh, uh, brought us to life by the power of the Holy Spirit and you continue uh, that life in us. As, as we meet today, we pray that you'll forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who are indebted uh, to us. We pray that you would uh, be merciful to our sins uh, through uh, the blood of Christ. The foundation of your throne is justice and it is righteousness. And were we to receive uh, that, we would uh, have perished long ago. We would never have been. But uh, you, by your mercy, uh, that, that goes before you, uh, have preserved us uh, in your grace, and we thank you for that. Be with those who are not able to uh, worship publicly with us today and, and bless them. And we pray and grant that we might know uh, your healing hand and in, in physical needs and in spiritual needs as well this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Hymns of Grace, Hymns of Grace 112, this is a hymn that if I had your email address, I sent it to you this week, and I know that you've diligently listened to it, so you've become familiar with it, and so I think it's the first time we will sing it. I will make mention, this was suggested to me, and I'm glad it was, and I encourage you, if you know of a hymn uh, that you're familiar with, um, that you might want to suggest it. Somebody suggested we have a hymn sing in the near future where we sing some of these hymns that may not be as familiar to us. But I hope you were able to familiarize yourself with it and that we can sing it to the glory of God. So I'm going to ask Rachel to play through it and then we will sing it together.
And now we'll read about the events leading up to that song we just sang that uh, made us, gave us what we have in Christ. Luke 22, we'll read verses 1 through 34. These are (coughs) ancient things that we are reading. This book itself is uh, very old, the Bible. These events uh, described are things that happened roughly uh, 2,000 years ago. But when we speak of ancient things, we have to go back even further than that. Um, Jesus says in verse 22 of this chapter, he says, Indeed, the Son of Man is going, speaking of his death on the cross, he is going to die. And then he says, As it has been determined... So these things were planned. This was not uh, random uh, chance events that happened. Peter describes uh, what happened there on the day of Pentecost with the words, Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So these things go back much farther uh, than 2,000 years. And again, Peter, more specifically, tells us when that determination uh, was made. He said in 1 Peter 1.20, who truly was foreknown or foreordained when? Before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So God who inhabits eternity uh, made this determination uh, and we today read about what God determined would be done uh, those many years ago. Luke 22, uh, verses 1 through 34. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was drawing near. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Passover sacrifice, of course, was when they the lamb Uh, was slain and so it is only fitting that God in his plan uh, would have the son the lamb of God slain uh, at the Passover and Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot who belonged to the number of the twelve and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. (coughs) Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, after you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room prepared there. And they left, 
and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table with the apost- and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to argue among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I grant you a kingdom, just as my Father granted one to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed earnestly for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me Denied three times that you know me. So we go to prayer once again this morning. We want to pray especially for Ho Jun Jang, who's there in South Korea, and we pray will be a church planter in in some time to come. So let us seek our God together in prayer. Father, we approach you this morning with hearts filled with gratitude. How thankful we are for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you that he was willing to shed his blood, for without the shedding of that blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. 
And so our hearts are filled with gratitude because for many of us, we are numbered as the children of God. For many of us, we have a new identity, having been found in Jesus Christ, and therefore we are numbered with the righteous ones. Therefore, we find that we have acceptance with you, for you are a holy God who demands a perfect righteousness. And through your Son, Jesus Christ, that righteousness is ours. And so we're thankful for that. We're we're thankful that you're the God who is in control of all things. And that whatever comes into our lives, those dark and sometimes sad and difficult circumstances, Father, we have the assurance that though we may not fully understand them, You're at work in the midst of them. And the promise is that in the end it will bring glory to Your great name and it will be for our good. So, Father, we have hearts filled with gratitude. We are thankful because we have the opportunity of of being a part of a ministry that encompasses the world. And though we may never travel to faraway places, we thank you that we can partner with those who are. Father, we're thankful for Ho Jun and his family and the work that they're doing there in South Korea. And we pray that you'll continue to bless. We thank you for the many contacts that they've recently made. And Father, we pray that those contacts may come to the worship services on the Lord's Day, and that from that you might be pleased to raise up a God-honoring and faithful church. And so we pray that you might continue to bless his endeavors. Thank you for the recent opportunity that you've given our brother even to have a broadcast over the radio. And we pray that as those have ended, that the word that went out would be used and and that, Father, we might see others added to the kingdom of God through faith and repentance. Thank you that we can have a part in that ministry because of the giving of your people. And may you bless our offering. May you bless our giving to that work and multiply it. And through that, advance your kingdom for your glory and for your honor. Father, we are a thankful people. We're thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy. We thank you that as we gather together, we do not do so with a sense of fear or uncertainty, but that we have the privilege of coming together and worshiping. Father, how we're thankful for our nation. And yet, Father, we cry out that you'll continue to show mercy upon us. We we have sinned against you. We we have forgotten you. We, We have gone our own way. Father, how we pray that we would see a revival in our land. We pray for our leaders, that you would bring them to have a fear of God and and not a fear of man. May, May you provide us with leaders that consider others more important than themselves. 
And in that, that, Father, we might know your blessing upon us. We don't deserve your blessing, but we thank you, thank you for your mercy that, again, continues to allow us the freedoms that we enjoy at this time. Meet with us. We're thankful for the opportunity of hearing your word. Be with Micah as he opens up the word of God. And, Father, may he be your instrument to do us good this day. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we come to open the Word of God, take your Trinity hymn books again, turning to number 35. 35 in the Trinity hymn book, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Let's stand. good to worship God with his people this morning, isn't it? If you've been with us for uh, any period of time here, you know that we've been walking through the attributes of God in in the form of a series here, and we've started with those attributes that are known as the attributes of God's transcendence. Um, Some people call them his incommunicable attributes, those attributes which describe the way that he is not like us as creatures. Those attributes which are characteristics of his being that we do not have and he doesn't expect us to have. Those attributes that describe him as the infinite one, as the most perfect one, as the one who has life from himself, the eternal one, the always existing one. We've been walking through some of those things together, and that's what we're going to continue with today. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see that the attribute that we are 
looking at today is his eternality. The title of this message is Behold Our God, Eternal. And I was telling Cliff this before, uh, before the service started, but as I was reading some of the texts that we're going to survey today, I was overwhelmed with the sense that my mind can't even scratch the surface of the realities that we're dealing with when we talk about the attributes of God. And I felt like this a little bit with each of the messages uh, that, we've, that, we've, that I've preached through these attributes, but this one especially. I remember some of my earliest conversations in life are memories of asking my parents about God. And I remember as like sort of one of my foundational memories because it just boggled my mind as a child and it still boggles my mind. Where asking, I remember asking my mom, you know, I know that we came from God. I know that we are created by God, but where did, where did God come from? Because as creatures, our minds work like that, don't they? They work in terms of a starting point and an ending point. We come into existence and our lives have a punctuation, the point at which we die. And our lives are lived along this course of time where we're constantly coming into new moments and losing old ones. They are lived across the span of a timeline that has a beginning and an end. My mom explained to me, well, God didn't come from anywhere. He just is. God has no beginning and he has no end. And you can imagine how hard that is for a seven-year-old to think about. But now I'm 27 years old and it's still hard for me to think about. I feel like my mind can't even begin to grasp the significance of what that means. And then I started digging into, as I was digging into some of these scriptures, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. And I realized that, as I've said before, when you start to study these attributes, it's sort of like you're coming to an ocean and you can see the water, but you can't see the bottom. It's like you're coming to a California redwood, these massive trees, and you can't get your arms around the tree, but you can just put your hand on the trunk. So our minds can sort of tiptoe along the boundaries of God's eternity as the attribute that we're looking at right now, but we can't plumb the depths of it because every single faculty that we have as creatures is bound by time. Every single way that we think from the moment when we start to become sentient and to have logical thoughts exists along a timeline where we think in terms of things having a beginning and an end and existing in this sort of succession of moments that we call time. The issue really is that as creatures, we have our existence our be- and our being and our lives on a temporal plane. And that's what this subject of God's eternality does for us. It describes the incommunicable attribute of God, his eternality, by which he is not like his creatures. 
It describes God as one who is not subject to the forces of time. It describes God as the one who is without beginning and without end. We have a beginning and an end, so we cannot conceive of a being without beginning and end. We grow old and we die, so we cannot conceive of a God totally who is immortal. Even during the courses of our lives, we possess our lives, even while we are alive, in a creaturely way. We don't possess the totality of our lives all at once, do we? Our lives are stretched out over a course of time, composed of individual moments that are past, present, and future. Our lives are chopped up and we live them in little bits. So even as we try to think about God's eternity, we're prone to think of it. Even when we do think about God's eternity, we're prone to only think of it as the fact that he is without beginning and without end. As if God's life were sort of this unending succession of moments. But as we're going to see, his eternity is something even more mysterious of that. So I guess through this introduction, what I'm trying to get across is we are fraught as creatures with frailty. We are fraught with weakness, with creaturely weakness in terms of how we think about God. So we describe God in creaturely ways, even though the reality is far much more than we can grasp. But what I want us to see, and we're going to open up the Word of God here together, is that this eternal God is exactly the God that the Scriptures tell us about. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, this is the universal testimony of God's Word. So we're going to do sort of a flyover of some of the major texts and see what they have to say about God's eternality. And what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping that those texts that we're going to briefly survey will give us a taste for God's eternality. And then we'll work out a little bit more in depth some of the issues with it as we come to our text in John chapter 8. So the first text, unsurprisingly, is Genesis 1-1. You can turn there with me if you want. Let's uh, pray before we look into God's word together. Father, we know that you are the infinite one. You are high and exalted above your creatures. We ask that you would, for your son's sake, who is the infinite and eternal God who has taken on flesh and become incarnate, taking, taking on the frailty of our being for us. For the sake of him and his work, I pray that you would condescend to us this morning and enlighten our minds to understand what is in your word. I pray that you would open our minds, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things for your law. And I pray that through this message, we, message, we would glory in Jesus Christ pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 1. This is the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So it might not be readily apparent to you from, this, from these first two verses that it is describing an eternal being here. But what Genesis 1-1 is doing is it's describing, 
or giving a reason for the existence of all created things. God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, that's a way of describing the totality of created existence. The heavens and the earth. This encompasses all creation. So what, the, what Moses is doing in Genesis under the inspiration of the Spirit of God is he's giving you a reason for the things that you see around you. He's giving you a ground for their being. But underneath this text, there is one who already is. There is one whom Moses is not trying to give you a reason for the existence of. He's assuming his existence because it's self-evident. Moses is assuming God's existence here, not only because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but because God is the one who necessarily must exist from himself. And he himself, his creative decree, is the reason for everything else that exists. So the eternality of God is assumed from the opening words of God's revelation to us. Turn with me to Psalm 90, verse 2. I'm not going to spend much time on these. I just want to give us a flavor for it, for what all of Scripture says about these things. Psalm 90, we'll read verses 1 and 2, actually. This is a prayer of Moses, the same author that wrote Genesis 1.1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So he's calling God their fortress. He's calling God this immovable object that they can trust in. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the mountains were brought forth. The earth and the world were formed by the creative activity of God the Holy Spirit. But there is one who exists before the mountains. There is one who is not formed. There is one who is not brought forth or birthed from anything else, but he has his existence in and from himself. We see the same, the same reality in Psalm 102. Psalm 102 was a passage that we looked at earlier in the service, and we actually read this verse, but Psalm 102, 26 and 27, or 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. So all created things are within the sands of time and they're constantly being changed because of it. But they're the work of His hands. You will change them like a robe, they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. So what's interesting here is that the psalmist is describing God's immutability and his eternality in the same breath because they go together and they're so tightly woven together that you can't conceive of one without actually thinking of the other. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, 
the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So everything else comes into being from him, but his being is everlasting. Isaiah 41.4 Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am He. What's interesting here is that Isaiah doesn't say, uh, the first and with the last, I was and will be He. he, he the, the tense of that verb is important here. He says, from the first and with the last, I am He. So He is the one who stands exalted above time and all things in time are ever present before Him because of His transcendence. And we're not going to walk through, or excuse me, we've got one more to look at in the Old Testament. Isaiah 57 Verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So Isaiah speaks of God not only as the everlasting one from whom the generations come forth, but he speaks of, he speaks of God's eternity as this transcendent state of his existence. It doesn't say that he is the endless one. He says that he is the one who inhabits a plane of existence that is infinitely above creatures. His eternity is simply the way that he exists. His eternity doesn't just have to do with his duration. It has to do with the way that he has his infinite life. And Isaiah lets us in on that in this verse. He inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He's infinitely exalted in a category of existence and life that is secluded only to him and his solitary being. And like I said, we're not going to go through all the New Testament uh, verses here. I just wanted to give us a flavor for the fact that this is from Genesis to Revelation, what Scripture says about God. So it is absolutely foundational. But Romans 1.23 calls him the immortal God. Romans 16.26 calls him the eternal God. 1 Timothy 6.15 and 16 calls him the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. And Revelation 1.8 says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. So do you see how absolutely crucial this attribute is? Do you see how absolutely essential this is to not only biblical truth, but faithful Christian orthodoxy? If you don't have an eternal God, you don't have God himself. This is something that is universally confessed all the way from the earliest days of the church on down to the present day. It's inscribed in our confession of faith because it is so foundational to the Bible's truth about the being of God. I mean, there's a reason that we don't look at Mormons and that Mormons are not actually Christians. Because they have a different conception of God's life. They have a God who came into being. 
They have a God who was created. They have a God who finds the source of his being outside of himself and was himself created. And then he goes on to create other things. This is a corrupting false teaching. So this is definitional of what it means to be a Christian, this understanding of the eternality of God. But even after we've quoted all the verses, and even after we've put them together, we still haven't said what they mean. We could have all these scriptures, and we could add up all the data points, and we could still, in the way that we describe God's eternity, we could still fall short of actually describing what it means for him to be eternal. But there is a helpful contrast in John chapter 8 that unfolds what divine eternity really means. So our our text that we're actually going to be opening up today is John chapter 8. There's a contrast here in Jesus' conflict with the Jews where he makes a couple of statements that unfold to us what it means that he himself and God more generally is eternal. John chapter 8 and starting in verse 51. This portion of the dialogue centers around Jesus' offer of eternal life to those who keep his word. Let's start reading in verse 21. Or 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Everlasting life is the subject here, and Christ who offers it. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, He will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Here's the crucial question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So central to this passage are Jesus' offer of eternal life to those who keep his word, his identity, who do you make yourself out to be, and his claim to authority before Abraham was, I am. But even as Jesus offers his people eternal life in this text, a helpful distinction arises that helps us conceive of what it means for God to be eternal. Because 
the reality of eternal life is, like I said, central in this text, but it's also one of the most pervasive themes in the book of John. Think about one of the most popular Bible verses that every child is taught from the time they're five years old. John 3.16. What's the subject of John 3.16? Eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. But it's also in John 4, 14, where Jesus comes to the woman at the well and he offers her the waters of eternal life. It, it's also in John 5, 24. It's in, in John 6, 40. It's a, it actually goes all throughout John chapter 6. There are four separate references to Jesus offering himself eternal life as the one who is the bread from heaven. But the tension in this text, in John chapter 8, is how can this man offer those who follow him eternal life? This highlights Jesus as the source of eternal life, and it also highlights the reality of the life that we have in Christ. But we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for a creature to have eternal life? Because that is what is kind of astounding about this passage. Creatures who are temporal. Creatures who come into existence and have a starting point and an ending point and live their lives over a span of time are being offered eternal life. In what sense can a creature have that kind of life? If, we, if you know your Bibles, you know that there are all sorts of creatures, two categories of them, in fact, that have this, this kind of life that never ends, that will never pass out of existence totally. We have immortal souls. If you are, whether you are in Christ today or whether you are not in Christ, you will have an everlasting existence somewhere. It will either be in the fullness of life, enjoying God forever, or it will be an everlasting death, but you will never pass out of existence totally. So even creatures are said to have everlasting life. Angels also have this kind of life. Angels were once created by God, and now that they have been created, they will never pass out of existence. So we as creatures possess a kind of eternal life. We possess a kind of everlastingness. But when confronted with the eternality of God in God's life, it would be a grave error for us to assume that we are eternal in the same way that God is. For a creature to have eternal life means something infinitely lower than it means for God to be eternal in his being. You could, you could conceptualize it like this if you wanted. As creatures, we are everlasting, but we stri strictly speaking, we're not eternal. We have a beginning and we will have no end, but we live within time. And even though we will never die, and even though we will never pass out of existence, our sort of infinite future is still a series of moments that we will live in the presence of God. Our lives will never end, but that is a far cry from the way that God possesses his life. And the reason I'm drawing this distinction, and it seems sort of confusing now, 
But the reason that I'm drawing this distinction is because I think sometimes we think of God's eternity as if it is just his not having a beginning and it is his not having an end. As if he were just a greater version of us without a beginning. That is not what God's eternity means. And when we think about God's eternity in that sense, we really lower him down to a creaturely level. For God to have eternity, it is not just about the duration of his life. It is not just about the quantity of his years. It is about the kind of life that he possesses. But when we compare creaturely eternity to the Creator, a clearer picture of his eternality emerges. So the second or the third point of this is the eternality of God. So we're going to kind of define what it means for God Himself to be eternal. And I think that it is found most clearly in in Jesus' statement in verse 58. So look at verse 58 with me. After all of this conflict, and after all of their questioning him about his identity, Jesus gives them this answer. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What's interesting about this this phrase, before Abraham was, does anyone in here have a New American Standard Bible? If you have a New American Standard Bible, there will be a little one in superscript that leads you to a footnote. And literally this word translates to came into being. The ESV says before Abraham was. The New American Standard, I believe, says before Abraham was created. But the Greek word actually means to come into being. And this actually harkens back to John chapter 1. John is using the same terms to define creatures over and over again. Turn turn back with me to John chapter 1 because we're going to see the contrast between Abraham's temporal existence and Jesus' eternal existence. What does it mean to be a creature? John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he is the one who is self-existent, referring back to Genesis 1.1. He was in the beginning with God. All things, this is the same word here, all things came into being through him. And without him was not, did not anything come into being that has come into being. John is using this language of coming into being over and over again in the book of John, and he uses it about Abraham here. So it's not just talking about a beginning. It's talking about a dependent existence that Abraham has as a creature. He was created by another. Jesus is comparing the way that he exists with the way that Abraham and all of us exist. Abraham exists contingently. He exists dependent upon the existence of another. But what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Jesus doesn't locate himself along the timeline in that way. 
So he's not just talking about pre-existence. Because there are a lot of creatures that pre-existed Abraham. The angels pre-existed Abraham. The angels can say before Abraham was, I was. I existed before Abraham was here. That's true. And they outlasted Abraham in, in the course of their lives. But Jesus is describing himself by a higher term here. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. So what this shows us is God's eternity is timeless. Jesus is not, strictly speaking, speaking of the past. He is calling himself the one that Isaiah said who inhabits eternity. He's referring all the way back as well to Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 where God says, or where Moses asks God, if they question me and say, who sent me? Uh, who should I tell them? What is your name? And he says, I, tell them I am has sent you to them. So Jesus is identifying himself with the divine name here. Jesus is identifying himself with every single perfection and every attribute of the living God. Jesus is also describing a kind of existence that he has that is not creaturely. Think about this for a second. Because I am a creature, I have a starting point, once again, and my life exists strung out over a succession of moments in time. We talked about that earlier. But I also have memories of life that I had in the past that represents portions of my life that are now gone that I will never get back. And I have expectations for the future as a creature of what my life might be that are not yet. So as creatures, we are constantly living our lives in a state of flux. We're constantly losing days, losing hours, losing moments, and gaining them. They're constantly waxing and waning. We don't possess the whole of our lives simultaneously. We possess our lives chopped up and compounded in bits. And that's what it'll be like forever. Even for all of eternity as we enjoy the glory of God, this reality that we exist moment to moment and experience our lives like that will never end. But what Jesus is saying is that he is the God who does not exist like that. He is saying that he is the God who, because he is independent of all things, is independent of time itself. Before Abraham was, I am. He is just the one who is. He, Jesus and the being of God does not have a past, present, and a future. That's part of the, that's part of the implication of God's timeless eternity. There is no future for God. There is no past for God. There is just an eternal present where it is just Him enjoying Himself in the fullness of His triune glory. Infinitely blessed. Infinitely happy in Himself. Infinitely full. Boundless in His being. He is unable to be limited or defined by time in the way that creatures are. So God's eternity we see how it kind of it folds into the other attributes that we've talked about, right? God is eternal because he is independent. God is eternal because he's immutable and unchangeable. 
He doesn't go through this constant change of moments that creatures do, having his you know, coming into being and moving out of being like we do. Because God is eternal, he is simple. And that's one of the reasons also that all of these attributes start to come very closely together in the way that we think about them because of one of the attributes that we've already looked at. We have already looked at God's divine simplicity because he is the infinite and uncompounded one. All of his attributes in his very being are actually one and the same. There is not a series of things that makes up God. There is just the God who is. And Jesus is saying in this text that I am that God. Before Abraham was, I am. That's what the divine name entails there. So, God's eternity does not mean just an endless succession of moments. It means something much more glorious than that. The, the fourth century, uh, 5th century Christian philosopher, Bethius, gave a definition of divine eternity that I think really sums up not only eternity, but its relationship with the other attributes. And it's really simple. Bethius said, God's eternity is the simultaneous possession of the whole of his infinite life. The simultaneous possession of the whole of his infinite life. No past, present, and future, just the God who is, because he cannot be limited. But this text is also good news for us today. Because this is in a gospel text. This is in a text that is describing the good news of what Jesus offers to his people. Because Jesus is the eternal God, because Jesus is the great I Am, who is the same God of Exodus chapter 3, the God that Moses saw in the bush, and the God that revealed his divine name to Moses, because Jesus is that God, verse 21 excuse me, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Because Jesus is the eternal God, he can offer eternal life to his people. This is why he can say, those who keep his word will never see death. If Jesus were just a man, like the Pharisees were assuming he was, because all throughout this text, that's what they're assuming. They're saying, you're just a man, you might be claiming to be greater than Abraham or you might be claiming to be one of the best of the prophets. If Jesus was just a man, there's no possible way he could offer eternal life like this. The reason that Jesus can offer this eternal life is because he is that infinite eternal God who has joined himself to our human nature. Because he is the God who is not only the one who is, but the one who entered into human frailty and experienced life as we experience it with all of our weaknesses. This text is good news because the eternal God came to us. And he offers us eternal life in his very person. This text is also good news because it means that even at the points of our most profound suffering and sadness in this life. God is with us in the fullness of his being. It's not part of us with it's not part of him with us now. 
and then part of him with us in the future, and then part of his life with us after that. At the moment of your deepest pain, at the moment of your most profound grief and sadness, God in his infinite life, his infinite timeless life is there with you to uphold you. This is why Jesus can say, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. This is the reason for the success of the gospel and the triumph of the Great Commission is because the infinite and eternal God is there with it at every moment in the fullness of his being, ensuring its success. His eternality is the ground of his omnipotence. His eternality is the ground of his omniscience, the fact that he is the all-wise God. And he is the God that can minister to every single need of frail and insignificant creatures like us. I would end this text with a word of encouragement and a word of warning. Because there is no merely mortal soul that is sitting here this morning. We all have an eternity ahead of us. And the weight of Jesus' words sheds light on that because for us, eternity will be in fellowship with the God who is. For us, eternity will be fellowship with the God who is infinite and unbounded life We will delight in Christ forever as the Father delights in Him and as the Spirit is the bond of their love. Eternity will be us essentially standing in awe and fellowship of the satisfaction and the mutual glory and the infinite eternal life of the three persons of the Godhead. That is good news to look forward to. But there's also the reality of eternal death away from this eternal God. There's also the reality that this eternal God, for for many, will be there in the fullness of his being for their torment. So I would encourage you today, come to this Savior that presents himself as the great I am in this text. Come drink from the waters of life that are in him and experience true joy and fellowship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, ask you to, even as your word has gone forth, we ask you to take these truths and apply them to our hearts. We ask that first and foremost we might stand in awe and in worship of you. We ask that we might delight in Christ more because he is not only the eternal one, but the one who offers frail creatures like us eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll uh, stand with me, we're going to close with uh, the hymn, Behold Our God. And that is Hymns of Grace number 26. 126. Hymns of Grace number 126. Behold our God.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless us as we continue to fellowship with one another and as we continue to worship you this afternoon. Would you uh, make all of our speech and all of our love for one another honoring to Christ. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.